There's an idiom that goes, those that can do and those that can't teach. And as funny as that might sound, the truth is that teaching or specifically teaching well has never been an easy thing. Anyone who's had to sit in front of a bad instructor can testify to that. Being a great photographer doesn't mean you can teach what you know, but photographer Juan Pons certainly can. In his role as a nature and wildlife photographer, a workshop leader, and co-host along with Rick Salmon of the Digital Photo Experience podcast, he is one of those few who can do and teach and do both very well. He loves photography, but he also loves sharing his knowledge and his passion with people like you and me. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was I was reading that you got introduced to photography during college and it seems like you really got into it and then life got the better of you and uh, you had a job and a career in computers and such. And what got you back into photography? What was the, the thing mm-hmm. that sort of sucked you back in? Cool, cool. Yeah, without that, we can talk about that. We can talk about that for hours. So, yeah, that's that's cool. And actually, it was in high school that I got hooked into photography, which is even cooler. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's go with that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, my, my photography, my passion for photography really started was um, the catalyst for it was an incredible teacher I had in high school. Um, I was fortunate enough that when I went to high school, some of high school still had um, photography programs. And... Miss Solaro, I mean, I've, I've been in touch with her, you know, past couple of years. Um, she still teaches there, and but in a much more reduced program. You know, her teaching style and her way of interacting with students really inspired me, really got me going with, with photography. And really, you know, she's the one that developed, developed that passion within me for, for photography. Um, she was not a person to, you know, she was always a person that gave you constructive criticism, even though if you if you made mistakes or things just didn't look right, you know, she always helped you and was positive, it was supportive. Um, and that's something that I've taken to heart. You know, when I now teach photography and I do critiques and, and, um, and people come to me, you know, I sort of think back to those days and I think about, wow, you know, it's, it's my, ta- it's my, ju- my duty, my job to really be supportive of people who want to uh, learn about photography and are, are sort of eager to learn about this. So, you know, she was a great inspiration. She taught not just the techniques, which we did about a lot about, uh, but she also, you know, one of the things that she really instilled in me is never be afraid to experiment. And, you know, and this was the days of film, which was, you know, expensive <laughs> to experiment. Yeah. I can't imagine what this class must be like now when you have digital and you can experiment, you know, without any, 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 any concern for cost or expense or, or materials. Yeah. What do you, what do you think it was about that relationship that sort of helped foster that, that passion for photography? Because like you, I had someone special in my life when I was younger that, that introduced me to photography, but there are a lot of people who get introduced to it, but, sort of let it go and so oftentimes i think that it's about the relationship that you had with the person that plays a a big part in sort of cementing that passion is that do you think that was the case with you and your your mentor 
Well, I, I absolutely. I mean, she and I just clicked. We got along great. I mean, she was just a very giving person and, and like I said, very encouraging and very nurturing. So, so absolutely. I mean, just the rapport that we had together, um, you know, it was kind of neat because I remember going with her, you know, after school and, you know, weekends we would go in, we, this was in Boston and we used to go to some of the um, camera stores. I remember going to Hunt's Photo. Uh, which I still do business with, outside of uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they used to they used to use this they used to do this uh, expo once a year, and she and I would go to that expo once a year. She and I was, as far as I know, I was the only student that was doing that, and just that relationship, just that encouragement and that nurturing that she gave me, definitely. I mean, it made me really appreciate not just her, but you know what she was passionate about, and that passion just sort of flowed into me, if you will. I mean, I attribute a lot of my passion and my driving photography to her um and not just because of the technique that she taught me but because of the passion that she she was so you know overflowing with passion about photography that a lot of that just you know I was absorbing it yeah and i think it's important regardless of whether you learned when you were a kid or you're learning as an adult that having that sort of connection with someone else where you're not only getting the technical information but also getting that sort of spiritual, emotional support is really important for wanting to grow as a photographer because though you can learn a whole lot on the computer and watch YouTube or get videos or get books, there's something about learning in conjunction with someone else, whether it's a a mentor, whether it's a teacher or just another photographer. And I think you kind of speak to that when you talk about how you like to serve your students as as a teacher and a mentor. Yeah, I mean, that, that's right on the money. I think that we can all be well served by having a photo buddy, if you will, someone that pushes us, someone that makes us want to do more and someone that, you know, sometimes when you want to wake up at three in the morning because you got an hour and a half, two hour drive to the next, you know, photo shoot or the place you want to go shoot and you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, do I really want to go? Do I really want to get up? I want to sleep instead. <laughs> but because you have this buddy, you have this other person who is driving and pushing you, it, you know, it makes you a better photographer, makes you a much more efficient photographer, if you will. Um, and it's not a competitive thing, but it is a, a give and take. It is a, a way in which you both nurture and help each other. And, you know, and I talk about this on my workshops all the time in that, you know, I learn, you know, probably as much as the students that come to the workshops. It's one of the great, one of the things I really love about the workshops because I see through other people's eyes the same scene that's unfolding in front of me. It's like, you know, people say you're looking at the world through a child's eye. It's kind of the same thing. I like to be around amateur photographers that are looking at a scene in a different way. A lot of times we um, look at a, look at something that's unfolding in front of us and we have preconceived conceptions of what we should do in this particular scene because, you know, we've been doing this for a while. We kind of do it the same way all all the time. But, you know, having someone there who's sort of new to this and seeing that through someone else's eyes, especially someone that's new, is very refreshing and very uplifting. And I think that having that, you know, photo buddy, that someone, somebody else that's looking at the same scene and looking at it from a different perspective is very, very helpful. Did you have that when you started getting back into photography after you had built this successful career? How did what role did that play in you being able to get back into into photography? Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, I, I um, you know, after high school, I 
you know, obviously went to college and whatnot. And in college, I still was involved in photography because, you know, I, I, I worked as the school staff photographer, student photographer. I was probably the best job on campus I had. I was very fortunate, very lucky um, in that the communications department at the university would basically pay me to go out and shoot events that happened at the school so they can then use that photography, that, those photos for their internal and external brochures, for example, the admissions newspaper, the weekly newspaper, the the next year's admissions brochures, all that kind of stuff. All my work was in there. And it was a great learning experience. It was very different than what I was used to doing because this was shooting events and people and things like that, uh, kind of a more photojournalistic kind of, kind of work, whereas my work, even from the very beginning, was more sort of nature, outdoors-oriented. But after college, again, you know, I, I went into, you know, I was a computer science person. I mean, I was pre-med biology before that, but I ended up in computer science and really, you know, started climbing the quote-unquote corporate ladder, if you will, sort of joining the rat race. And my photography really took a backseat for many years. I didn't really do much. I mean, it was still there. You know, I still knew, you know, what to do. And when I did take pictures, you know, I was probably a little better than your average Joe that's taking pictures, but it really, really took a backseat. I really, you know, didn't do all that much. I think my SLR sat in a, in my bag for for a very long time. I was shooting a lot with you know point little pointing shoots, and really, what turned things around for me was when I moved from Boston. I lived in Boston for many years to North Carolina, and I I, I built a house in a very rural setting out in the woods. I had you know acres of land, and all of a sudden. You know, without me realizing, there were all this, this wildlife around me, um, you know, coming to my yard, all sorts of stuff, really cool stuff. So I said, you know, I got to get back into this. I got to capture these these animals. I got I to gotta take pictures of this stuff. And that's really what rekindled my photography. And I mean, literally, you know, overnight, mm. I went from not really taking that many pictures to just being absolutely, completely obsessed. Wow. That's... Yeah. So, I mean, just little changes like that. You focused a lot on landscapes and wildlife, and and you're active in several conservation organizations. When did you start thinking about not just making photographs of those subjects, but playing a role in in preserving the environment and the species that you were interested in photographing? Well, it, you know, it's interesting. I've I've been, you know, I like to say that I'm a dirt worshiping tree hugger <laughs> for a long time. I've been very connected to nature from, from a very early age. You know, it, it sort of, to me, it was natural. To me, it was, you know, I'm taking these, in, these pictures of these incredible animals, these incredible landscapes, things that are in danger of disappearing. And I thought it was really my duty. And it was, you know, I had this gift, if you will, of being able to take these good pictures. It was really my duty to share this with other people so they could actually learn about the environment and learn to appreciate it. Um, you know, there's, there's a famous quote about, you know, we only uh, care about, the, we, you know, we only care about the things that we love. And for you to really uh, love nature and want to take care of it, I mean, you have to love it. You have to learn about it. And very early on, when I was in North Carolina, I hooked up with the Museum of Natural Sciences in North Carolina. They started using a lot of my work. I was donating a lot of my work to them. Um, and I was also working with some conservation organizations to actually spread my work, really show uh, showcase my work. And what really turned it for me, there was a particular refuge in North Carolina that was being that was my favorite refuge. I was driving out there, you know, as much as I could to photograph about eighty thousand snow geese 
um, and about 30,000 tons of swans every winter um, and tons of black bears. This is, this is a jewel of, of, a, of a wildlife refuge. And it was being threatened by a wrong-headed proposal to build a landing, a, a training site for the Navy right in the middle of this refuge, um, which was, you know, you think about you have uh, 80,000 birds in flight that weigh about 30 pounds each. How can that, you know, be compatible with <laughs> with military jets coming in for landing? You know, it's kind of a, a, a recipe for, for disaster. Um, and it's not that the state was, and we were opposed to to creating that landing site for, for training of the military, of the jet pilots. I mean, that's very important. But, you know, we thought that there were better places to do that in. And I teamed up with the um, Audubon, North Carolina, to actually document a lot of what was going on inside the refuge. Um, and I did that for a number of years. They used a lot of my pictures. And that then when when the issue was really being escalated at the national level, then I got contacted by Audubon National. And they were doing a whole big story about this. I want to say that one of my proudest moments in photography is when my images um, ran alongside the story by Ted Williams. If, you know, Ted Williams is a very renowned, a very famous, and an incredibly good writer um, on nat- natural issues. Um, and I was very fortunate to have my images run alongside um, his article. And you know, believe it or not, I've had images that have been much more high profile. You know, but that to me, still to this day, you know, one of my most important publishing achievements, if you will. You know, and it's wonderful that your images can be used to to protect something that you love and so passionate about. I think that, you know, there's so many potential encroachments on a lot of these natural spaces for any variety of different reasons. And I think that it's it's really being proactive in a way to be able to use your images and share them and say, use them to help preserve this and to educate people about why it's why and so why it's so important rather than just going there and making your trophy photographs and and going home while they sit doing nothing on a hard drive in order to really capture the essence of a place or a subject you got to photograph it many 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 times i mean you can't just go to one place and take a shot and and that's it you got to go and photograph it in different environments different seasons different light all that kind of stuff and i love going to this place and the the thought of not being able to go to this wildlife refuge and take continue making images there every winter like I had been doing for a number of years, you know, was just devastating. So in a way, you know, yes, it was altruistic of me to do this, but it, there was a, an element of, of selfishness in here that I, I really wanted to enjoy this and I wanted other people to enjoy it as well. You know, and, and I have to say that we were lucky and fortunate that uh, the Navy reconsidered and they're looking for a different place to build the training facility. So it was really, you know, a victory for all concerned, you know, yeah. for the animals that were there. For the people of North Carolina, people for everywhere that, that go out there and uh, and photograph. And I've, I've run a number of workshops out there. I don't do them anymore, but it is just a spectacular place. And people who are interested in finding out about that, you know, they can email me, and I'll be happy to tell them where they need to go because it is it is a great place. And I look forward to going again sometime soon. And you make an excellent point about returning to a place over and over again so that you can understand it, all its nuances. I mean, going to places like, you know, Yosemite or the Grand Canyon is great, but for a lot of people, that can be few and far between. Talk to us about the importance of finding a location near to you so that you can get that familiarity, so that you can get that sort of valuable understanding of a place, both in terms of 
you know, the natural animals and everything else that is there to help hone your skills as a photographer. I mean, it's like you know me. This is a, you, know, you know me intimately. This is crazy. Because, I, I mean, I talk about that all the time. And a lot of the talks I give, a lot of the workshops that I give, you know, even though I do workshops in some, you know, exotic and, you know, spectacular places like, like Yellowstone or Bosque de Apache or, or Smoky Mountains and whatnot, you know, when I do my presentations, about 90 to 95% of the images that I show in my presentations were things that I shot in my backyard, literally. And this is wildlife, wildlife and nature. This is not, you know, garden art <laughs> or anything like that. Because, I mean, we, you know, like you said, places that we get to frequent often are the ones that we know the best and we can actually capture those and capture the essence the best. So being able to go to a particular location repeatedly over and over again in different, you know, different times of year, different, um, different lighting conditions, that's all important in being able to capture the place. Not only will you know... You know, what the right place is, where the light's going to be best in the morning or best in the afternoon or even during specific weather events. You know, for example, I like to shoot a lot in inclement weather just because it adds a lot of a lot of interest to the scene. Yeah, days that are cloudy, puffy clouds and you know, great, you know, strong, diffuse light are great. But a lot of the drama happens on those days that are, are you know, where you run into inclement weather. But. You know, those are not the times where you want to be exploring a new location. By knowing a place inside out, understanding the animals that live in there, the subjects that prowl that location, if you will, you know, you know that waterfall that's that's at that location and how it's going to be look when the on the spring versus the fall or versus the summer or even versus the winter. You know, what's going to happen in the winter when the ice starts forming around it? That's what's going to make you create the best images of a particular subject or a particular location, knowing it intimately and knowing it well. That's the, you know, the number one thing that people can do in order to capture the best or make the best image that they can of a particular subject itself is knowing it inside out. And, you know, what's easier to do than something that's close to you? You know, not everybody can go to Yellowstone or Yosemite or, or wherever else four or five times a year or even more. Finding a location near you where you can go to often, you know, a couple times a month even or, or even more frequently and visit over and over again. Get to know it intimately. Get to know the patterns of things that occur within that location. That's what's going to make you be- make the best images you can. Okay. Well, you were living in, in South Carolina? Well, I was living in North Carolina, North but Carolina. I'm living now in Maine. Okay, so now you're in Maine. So you're in a completely different environment. So Very. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing in terms of finding those locations? What kind of resources are you using to sort of discover those places? Because you, you virtually have to start all over again in terms of finding what you had back in North Carolina. Oh, yeah. There, there's no question about that. You know, you know fortunately... I am. I'm in Bangor, Maine now, which is about an hour, uh, an hour and ten minutes away from Acadia National Park, which is, in my opinion, probably the top two or three national parks in the country. Just spectacular place, especially for landscapes and uh, and nature subjects. And I'm also an hour and a half away from Baxter State Park, which contains uh, Moosehead Lake and Mount Katahdin. You know, two incredibly iconic locations. Um, you know, it's a state versus national, but like, for example, the, the Appalachian Trail ends in Mount Katahdin. Very, very, very uh, popular place and in, in, in a place that a lot of people are familiar with. 
So I get to go to those often. However, finding those places off the beaten path, those places that are unique, is what's going to set you apart from all the you know the fifty thousand people that shoot pictures at Acadia National Park every year. It's actually more than fifty thousand. It's a couple million people that shoot pictures in there. So, so absolutely, it's really important to find those locations. And you know, believe it or not, there's a couple of things that are, make it really easy. The internet is a wonderful thing. The first thing that I do is start subscribing and start participating in wildlife and nature conservation organizations. Find your local Audubon chapter and get involved with them. They will you through them you will find out all these incredible cool places that exist, you know, near your house. Look for local conservation organizations. For example, in North Carolina there's a place called the Triangle Land Conservancy, which is kind of very similar to the um the Land Conservancy, which is a national organization. Also, there's some birding groups that you can if you're into wildlife and you're into birds, you know, join some of the local birding groups. They have mailing lists that you know, people report where some of the, the neat things are. Um, look for state parks and national parks around your area. And I also, the other, the other, my secret weapon, if you will, is Google Earth. Load up Google Earth and start looking the area surrounding you. Find cool places that, um, or places that look interesting in Google Earth. You know, whether they're lakes, rivers, forests, parks, or whatnot. And, you know, that is sort of my secret weapon. I'll go in there every so often and start looking to see what looks interesting, what, you know, um, what looks like it could contain some unique natural feature or unique wildlife. And then recently, Trey Ratcliffe came out with an application for the iPad called Stuck on Earth, which is a way for people to share locations around them um, where they can find you know, interesting subjects to photograph. And that's not limited to nature or wildlife. It's like, it's, it's about everything. There's a lot of stuff on urban photography um, and, and whatnot. So that those are probably the best ways that you can very easily find out resources around, you, around your area, whether you've been there, you know, you know, your entire life or just moved the moved there like I just did. Yeah. One of the things that I'm always considering when I go out, I don't do a lot of that kind of photography, but when I do, how much or how little equipment to bring is always an issue oh, man. for me. Yeah. And sometimes I've taken everything and the kitchen sink and I'm absolutely miserable carrying that stuff after one day. <laughs> and then I say, screw it. I'm taking one body, one lens. And you know, there, there, there are two ways of thinking in terms of it. I mean, you want to have the right equipment to be able to capture what you hope to get, but also particularly for those of us over 40, carrying 30 pounds worth of gear in a backpack is also kind of prohibitive. So where do you strike the balance in terms of having enough but not having too much to ensure that you get something that you can be happy with? You know, that's that's sort of a perennial question, right? Is like yeah, everybody everybody struggles with that. You know, and, and as Murphy Law says, whenever you don't bring that macro, that's when you see some really cool stuff to shoot, with, <laughs> shoot the macro with, Right. Uh, and really, I mean, for me, it depends on my mode of transportation. If I am getting in my car and I'm driving locally, what I will normally do is I bring a lot of the stuff that I have, you know, a lot of my equipment. You know, I may leave some things behind, but I will bring, you know, you know, the kitchen sink and almost everything else because I'm in my vehicle. However, what I also do is I bring a small backpack with me because sometimes what I will do is if I'm going then hiking from there or I'm going to a particular location from there, I will just Pull out selected equipment from that, from all that stuff that I brought. Stuff in a small backpack, 
and, and go from there. So I kind of use my my vehicle as a location to house the, the bulk of my equipment, but I may then go out with, with a smaller set of equipment. Now, the location is also going to ma- is going to be a, a great determining factor what you're going to bring. So, for example, if I'm going like I've been, I'm going to be doing in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be going to the interior of Maine to actually uh, scout out an area that has a number of water features and waterfalls and whatnot. Well, I know I'm only going to be, I'm, you know, I'm only going to be shooting wide angle stuff. I'm not going to be shooting, you know, birds up in a tree. Yeah, I may see those, and I know, man, if I had this lens, I would have been able to shoot, you know this uh, rough grouse that was up on that tree. But you know what? I'm here for, for, for to shoot the waterfalls. And, you know, maybe someday when I come back and I know that I'm able to capture those, uh, I'll bring my big big 500-millimeter lens. But normally, especially when I'm scouting an area, I will, I will bring, you know, some, uh, smaller equipment, uh, smaller lenses, a smaller amount of equipment. But it's always, you know, and, and – what I said about the macro, uh, the joke that I made about the macro, it's a joke, but it's true. I mean, a lot of times you go in and you're like, man, I wish I had this, especially when you're just when you're just scouting. It's, it's, it's very difficult. And I'm not sure that there's a, you know, a way to guarantee you have everything that you need unless someone makes a eight to 500 millimeter lens. I'm not sure that that, that that's going to work. Mm. And it's also about sometimes saying I'm only carrying this this, you know, select piece of equipment and I'm just going to make images with this because I'm, there may not be those other photographs that I'll miss, but not being preoccupied with what you missed. And sort of narrowing your vision can sometimes be really helpful because especially when you're out exploring a new area, it seems like your synapses can be firing all at once simultaneously. And you can be seeing everything but not really shooting what you're meant to shoot in a way. Right. I mean, you've heard of, you know, there's a perennial exercise that a lot of people go through, right? Which is, you know, use one lens for two weeks kind of thing. You know, try to, try to uh, see the world and see everything through this one lens and try to use this one lens for that amount of time. And it's a great exercise. And, and, and like you said is, you know, you make the best of what you have with you and working those subjects, using that one lens and not worrying about what you don't have with you. Sometimes, Having too much equipment can actually be a hindrance. I mean, I've been I've been in, in workshops, especially in, like in Yellowstone, mm-hmm. where you know you can really literally shoot stuff with eight millimeter lenses one minute, and then five hundred millimeter lenses the next. And I've seen people with so much gear sometimes that they're fiddling around with the gear so much that they may miss the shot. You know, sometimes you do what you can with what you have with you. That's a good exercise. That's something that. Um, will hone your photography skills, trying to see the world through a um, yeah, limited set of, of tools, if you will. It's, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. You, you, you've created some great work, and I really love, oh, thank you. love a lot of your photographs. And now you're, you know, you're working with Rick Salmon on the podcast, and you teach workshops with him, but you're also around some other wonderful photographers. I think you've been around Rob Shepard and Jenny Wu and, oh, yeah. and a lot of other people whose work is just fantastic. So how do you deal with, you know, your whole issue in terms of your work compared to their theirs? Uh, you know, because it's like when you're around people who are exceptionally good, at least I can get kind of intimidated. Even if I'm te- teaching right alongside with them, all those, you know, all my thoughts about my own judgments about my own work can really come up. And I think a lot of people see your work, they see who you're teaching alongside with and going, 
oh, he, he doesn't worry about those thoughts, but if you're like, if you're like anybody else, I suspect you do. So I'd like to hear from your perspective on that. Well, I mean, yeah, no, I'm the most confident person in the world. I am sure about myself about every single picture I've taken, right? <laughs> um, yeah, no, it is humbling. I mean, I, I'm, I, I consider myself incredibly fortunate to be able to work uh, alongside and consider a lot of these people my friends. I mean, some incredibly talented people. And yes, you know, a lot of times you go, um, you go out with them. I mean, it, it, actually, this is the worst part, right? Is you go out with them and you're look. You're both looking at the same scene, and you're like, "Ah, eh, this doesn't look that great." Or whatnot. And they take a couple of shots, and they show you what they took, and you're like, "Holy moly! How did I yeah. not see that?" Um, and, and it is quite humbling. But you know what? The way I see it is, you know, I'm teaching them stuff all the time, and you know, Rick and I. One of the reasons why Rick and I work so well together, and, and, and for that matter, Rob Shepard and I work so well together, is because we offer different strengths. We have different strengths in different areas, and we both sort of learn and feed from each other. And that, to me, has helped me try to, you know, get over that sort of shyness or that sort of insecurity. It's like, okay, yeah, I mean, everybody has a skill. Everybody has a vision. Everybody has a way of seeing things. Um, in certain cases, theirs may be more compelling, but in certain cases, mine may be more compelling. Um, and honestly, you know, I hang around people that are genuine, that are down to earth. They don't take themselves too seriously and are just fun and friendly to be around. And that 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 applies to all the people that you mentioned. And I think that that's important is, you know, you want to be able to have fun. You want to, you know, to me, that's my big thing. And it's something that I really learned from Rick is, you know, if it's not fun, why do it? You know, try to find something else. So there's so many things for us to do out there in the world, in our lives, you know, concentrate on the things that you enjoy doing and spending time with these people that really enjoy what they do and their enthusiasm for the work is so infectious. You can't help but rub off, rub off on you. And, um, and I think that that's really what um, has tempered my insecurity from that perspective is, you know, these these are people. And just the way they treat you and the way you talk to them, you know, you know that they're people and they, they're just like you. Um, and, you know, they do have a skill in one area, but you have other skills and you have other things to offer. And that's one way to think about it is, you know, we're all in this kind of together. And, you know, you teach them something, you know, they learn something from you, you learn something from them. You know, sometimes you end up learning a lot more from them <laughs> than they learn from you, but that's okay. Yeah. But you talk about, you know, being around people who are very sincere, very open. And I think yes. that's that's really important. But, you know, there's no shortage of trolls out there. Oh, my God. You know, whether it's on the message boards or if in the, in a camera club. And for someone who's sort of out there just getting into photography, it can be really intimidating already with all the technical information, but throw into the mix that sort of negativity. And I think for people who are out there who are out there trying to find sort of a positive environment, what are your suggestions in terms of what they can do to sort of negotiate through all that stuff and find a place that's both safe, supporting, and encouraging for their photography so they can you know, develop as a photographer. I mean, that, that, I mean, those are great points because, you know, I, I was very involved in a, in a very, I'm not going to mention names, but in a very big online um, photo uh, critique site, if you will, photo forum, if you will. And, you know, I, and I, and I see a, a progression of um, what happens in a lot of those places and that you do get a number of people who are very good at what they do, but are not necessarily uh, supportive or nurturing of those that are starting to learn. And a lot of those that are starting to learn see the incredible work that these people produce and they get completely intimidated. 
but it extends beyond that. I mean, Rick and I, in one of the podcasts recently, blog posts and whatnot, talked about the experience of one of my workshop participants that came onto my workshop completely devastated because they had received really bad uh, review of their work by a by a well-known professional. You know, and one of the and I do a lot of work also with camera clubs, so I know sort of the dynamics of things that happen within camera clubs. And I do a lot of judging at camera clubs and, uh, you know, for competition, things of that nature. One of the first things that I like to say to people is, you know what, I'm going to be up here and sort of critiquing your work. I'm going to try my best to give you positive, constructive criticism. But you always have to remember, this is just one person's opinion. This is just me. You know, you can go to somebody else, someone who is much better than I am or someone who is more you know, amateur, and they'll give you a completely different opinion than I am. They're going to maybe love the work versus I didn't like it or vice versa. So, you know, what you need to do is concentrate on what, you know, the advice I give to people is concentrate on what you like to do. Don't shoot for other people. Shoot for yourself. Shoot for what you want, what fulfills you, what you like to shoot. Yes, you want to learn and improve your craft and find out how you can improve your own work. But as long as you're fulfilled with what your own work is, what you're doing, you know, who cares what these trolls or what these other people say? For a lot of people, for most people, photography is a is a is about personal fulfillment. Um, some of us, it's about you know also, in addition to personal fulfillment, what we hope is also to make a living at it. But uh, to me, still number one is personal fulfillment. Am I enjoying what I'm doing? Am I enjoying the photographs that I'm making? Yes, getting that review from somebody else, a positive review um, from somebody else is great. It, it boosts your ego and makes you feel good. And it's also important to 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 absorb and integrate that uh, criticism that you're getting, that negative criticism. But, you know, again, that's just one person's opinion. Think about what you like about the work that you're doing and and, and work at making the image that you like to make. Don't shoot for other people. Shoot for yourself. Yeah. Well, you've been embracing video as part of your uh, what you have in your utility belt, and yeah. what's what's the attraction to video, and what do you what do you find that that's allowing you to express visually that uh, that you find exciting and different from what you've been doing with with stills? Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. I I've, I've I've dabbled with video for a long time here and there, um, and I've always found it incredibly frustrating because here I am with a still camera, which I can change lenses. And photograph with my same camera using macro lens, something really small and tiny in front of me. Or I can use a long lens and photograph an animal that's really far away. When you start looking at that from a video perspective, I mean, the, the amount of money to be able to do that was incredibly prohibitive. Most um, video cameras out there that are, that are affordable to mere mortals are meant to shoot people. So, you, you know, you can only... Um, they have a limited zoom range, a limited focus range, and, and, and things of that nature. When the digital SLRs started to have the capabilities of shooting video, of, of recording video, I mean, I was ecstatic. I was like, wow, this is, this is incredible. That means I can use all these incredible tools, all these incredible lenses that I have to make these images, to make these videos that, you know, I've always wanted to make. There's certain things that I still have found that I can't, properly expressed, if that's the way of saying it, with a still, you know, in such a way that really moves people. And to give an example, I talked about that refuge in North Carolina that had 80,000 tundra swans flying in front of you, sorry, um, uh, snow geese in front of you. 
you know, I can take pictures that are frame filled with, you know, thousands of snow of uh, 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 snow geese, but you still don't get that sound. You still don't get that motion of all those birds flying and, the, and what they do. Whereas with video, I can actually capture that. So I feel that there's some things that you can convey a lot more effectively with video. And, and then now that the SLRs can do this, can capture this, and you have the plethora of, of lenses that you can use that I already have, it makes a huge difference. And, and, and I've enjoyed shooting that. I, and I don't do that. I still shoot more stills than I shoot video, for sure. But I enjoy sort of the sort of the other aspect of it. You know, I'm, uh, you know, we talked about how my background is in technology, right? So I'm exercising one part of the brain with that, and I'm exercising another part with my photography, sort of the artistic side. And I kind of think video and still is kind of the same thing. You're exercising two halves of your brains, if you will. One that's, you know, kind of how do I make this one image that captures everything that's happening in front of you, versus, you know, what kind of how can video and the sound that accompanies the video really put that person in that place that that still can do. And, and that's one of the challenges that I find about shooting both is trying yes. to decide, decide yeah. okay, which of the two do I get? Because you have to use the camera in a dramatically different way. You really have to change your entire mindset to go from sit still to shooting video from not just the settings of the camera, but just how you handle the camera. Well, so, not only that, but I mean, how you capture what's in front of you, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 absolutely, the mechanics are very different, but also, you know, the way. For example, I mean, one, one example, one of the things that I that I talk about, you know, upfront from when I when I teach about uh, shooting video with the digital SLRs, is you know, as photographers, we're always looking to capture that decisive moment, that peak of action. I mean, that's what we're trying to capture with that still. Not so with video. With video, you're trying to tell a longer story, if you will. Um, you got to start shooting before that peak of action happens, before that decisive moment happens. Um, because if you press that button on the video camera, as that decisive moment is happening, you've sort of missed the whole thing for the most part. You need to have, you have, to have a lead-in for people to know what's going on in, in, in a video versus a still. So in, in composition may be different on how you position elements within your your frame is a little bit different. So yeah, I mean, not only is it a shift, like you were saying, from the way you, you got to set your camera and handle this and, and do that, but it's also, to me, the hardest part is sort of making that mental shift as to how am I capturing this scene in front of me, the video versus, uh, versus a still. Because yeah, we can always press that video button and start shooting right away, but you know, you'll find, a lot of people find that if you start making these little clips here and there like that, you can't weave those into a story. There's a lot more than just capturing these little clips and clips here and there. You have to really set set a scene and set a um, um, a feeling for the entire you know, what you're trying to convey in a video is a lot more. It's a lot different. Um, there's 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 such a thing called as B-roll, for example, which means all this other you know fluff, if you will, that you want to include in an image in a, in a video to support your central theme, um, whether it's to use via transitions or to give some people a rest, uh, a mental rest from what they've seen on the screen. I mean, there are all these little things that you have to do with video that you don't necessarily have to do with stills that, that make a big difference. And, 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 you know, and to me, like you were saying, it's, it's, it's difficult to make that shift quickly from you know, back and forth. And I'll have to have you back just to talk about video alone. 
Oh, sure. Anytime. <laughs> yeah, I mean, video. Rick and I put out a DVD on shooting video with your Canon cameras. Um, it's very technical for the most part, but there's there's a lot of stuff that that we can talk about. That's more about what we what what I just discussed. And by no means, I am not. You know, I'm pretty. I've been doing this video stuff for a couple of years now, but I'm pretty new to this. I I've, I'm fortunate enough to have again, as we talked about earlier, kind of mentors, people that help me through this process, people that are very experienced in this space that help me learn about this. Otherwise, you know, otherwise, it, you know, it would have taken me much longer to learn all this stuff. Well, my last question is to ask you, uh, I ask each of my guests to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be any, huh. so it can be someone you've long admired or someone you recently discovered. So who is that one photographer and why? I think I'm going to cheat. Um, <laughs> You're one of those guys, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's sort of hard to pinpoint one person because I enjoy a lot of things from different people. Um, and, and I enjoy different photographers for different reasons. But, you know, as I said earlier, one of the, I mean, it's amazing to me today what the internet has done, um, to allow people to share their work and allow people to be discovered. Um, I have seen some work that I've been incredibly envious of from people who are not, you know, quote unquote professionals, people that are just amateur that do this for the love of photography. So, you know, what I, what I would suggest people do is actually that they spend a little bit of time um, and look at other photographers that are not necessarily, you know, pros, people that are well-known. I mean, all of those, you know, you can find those easily. A lot of people talk about them. Um, a lot of people uh, uh, recommend them on, online and whatnot. But find, you know, even if they're close to you, even better, people that you can actually get to meet, that, whose work you admire, um, people that you love the work that they do. Um, and again, this could be, you know, I've met um, a fantastic photographer when I was in North Carolina. I, her last name escapes me right now. Her name is Gabby. Um, and she was um, a, a winner on one of the uh, Nature's Best competitions. Um, and, you know, this was a, a, a young girl. I think at the time she was 16 um, who was doing just incredible nature work. So, you know, finding those people around you. Um, oh, sorry, her name is Gabby Salazar. Um, right. Just incredible work. But, you know, just find people around you that are not necessarily professional photographers whose work you admire, whether they belong to a camera club, your local camera club, or you find something, some of them online at a, at a, at a photography-related forum or Google Plus or something like that. And look at their work, see what takes them, understand, you know, why they do what they do, and actually get to meet them. You know, it's a lot easier sometimes to get to meet people that are, you know, amateurs, if you will, than professionals, not because professionals are detachable, you know, you can't reach out to them. Or it's just because we're so busy trying to make a living at this that sometimes it's a little hard for us to give that time. So try to find someone again. And this is the part that I'm talking about cheating. I don't want to point to somebody in specific. I just want to say, find that person yourself, someone that's local, someone that is, you know, an amateur that you, whose work you enjoy, because I've seen some amateur, you know, quote unquote amateur work that, rivals the best out of any, any professional photographer out there. Well, Juan, muchísimas gracias. It's uh, really enjoyed having a chance to sit down to you and talk to you one-to-one. -one. Mucho gusto, hombre. As always, you know, I'm, I'm here. I, I would be happy to come back and talk about video at, at some point in the future. And I, and I, and I really enjoy uh, talking to you, enjoy listening to your voice. I always love listening to your voice on your podcast because you have that great radio voice, which <laughs> I'm very envious of. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's been my pleasure. So where can people find out more about 
all the things that you're doing, the podcast, the workshops, your photography, where do you, where do people go? Well, I'm, I'm in the midst of actually consolidating a lot of this stuff because I had this stuff all over the place. Now, what I'm trying to do is consolidate it all in a new website that I launched. And uh, I can be reached at juanpons.org. That's J-U-A-N-P-O-N-S dot O-R-G. And I'm trying to consolidate everything in there, my workshops, the podcast, my work, my schedules, all that kind of stuff into one location. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.